If you would, please turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 17. The Gospel of John, and we'll be this morning, excuse me, in chapter 15. John, chapter 15. And we'll consider together this morning, as part of our regular exposition of God's Word in the Gospel of John, uh, verses 1 through 8. John 15, please follow along as I read verses 1 through 8. Jesus said, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples." Let me ask that we pray once more. Let's pray. Father, we've arrived now at this consideration of your word, and we ask that you would come and speak to us, uh, that you would come and help us as the word is opened up, that you would apply it to our hearts, and that it would have free reign to mold and shape us and to conform us to the image of the Lord Jesus. We pray, Father, that we would understand better what it means to abide in Christ, to have union and communion with Him, and that we would experience in our lives a closeness with Christ that we have yet to experience. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Last week, I began the sermon with a question. Uh, I I asked if we were to hand out three-by-five note cards. And if I were to ask this question, what is the ministry of the Holy Spirit? Or how would you describe the ministry of the Holy Spirit? What would you write? And uh, in the sermon itself, we summarize the ministry of the Holy Spirit uh, in this way, that the Holy Spirit sent from the Father to mediate to the believer the presence and ministry of the Lord Jesus. The Holy Spirit is sent to disciples living in a context in which their Lord is physically absent, but His presence is with them, His ministry is with them, His teaching and His truth is with them, and it comes to them by the person and work of the Holy Spirit. Well, I want to start this message in a very similar way. Imagine that the ushers came and passed out three-by-five note cards, and you were to give an answer to this question. Here's, here's the question. Uh, what is the most common way in which the Bible describes the Christian? What is the most common way in which the Bible describes a Christian? What would you write down on your card? Um, I wonder what variety of answers we would get if we collected them. Uh, Well, I'll give you a clue. The Bible does not routinely describe Christians as Christians. That's not the usual designation that's given, though that is contained in a few places. They're not most commonly referred to as those who have been born again or have been regenerated by God's Spirit, though that's certainly true and contained in a number of texts. They're not even principally described as children of God, uh, though gloriously, wonderfully, 
Every true believer has been adopted by God and is God's child. The number one way in which the Bible describes the Christian, the disciple, the follower of Christ, is as one who has been united to Christ, one who has been united to the Lord Jesus. This comes to us very often in that little phrase that a number of the New Testament writers use, especially Paul, in Christ. If you're in Christ, that's the, the most common way by which the New Testament refers to us being united to Christ. We are in Christ. This reality of us being united to the Lord Jesus comes to us as well in uh, various texts in the form of propositional truth claims. Uh, we're taught our union with Christ through the ordinances, especially of baptism. Uh, baptism is understood to be a symbol, a picture of our union with Christ. Romans 6 especially talks about this, that we are in some sense, buried with Jesus in baptism, and we are raised with Him to newness of life. But the New Testament also conveys this idea of us being, as believers, united to Jesus Christ by virtue of various uh, images and metaphors that the Scripture uses. And we have one such image, one such metaphor uh, in our text this morning in John 15 verses 1 through 8 on the lips of the Lord Jesus. Uh, This passage, these words from Jesus, are all about the union of believers uh, with Christ Himself, and we're given that through a picture of branches attached to a vine. But it's not just about objective union with Christ, it's also about subjective or experiential, experimental communion with Christ, uh, relationship with Christ, intimacy with Christ, to walk with Christ, and we have that all given to us by virtue of this image of a vine and branches. Uh, There's a sense in which the entire upper room discourse, that's uh, some say chapters 13 through 17 or more narrowly chapters 14 through 16, it's Jesus' instruction to His disciples in the upper room. He's in uh, the last hours of His life. He has been out and among the crowds and, and He has done miraculous signs and wonders. He's dialogued with various individuals, but now He's alone with His disciples. And we have this glorious section in these chapters which more or less tell us what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, what it means to live in relationship with Him that involves a number of things. And last week we considered the role of the Holy Spirit in nurturing communion with the Lord Jesus and with God the Father. Uh, But now we, we look very directly through this image that Jesus provides for us at what our relationship with Christ looks like in its uh, experiential, being lived out sort of way. What does communion with Christ actually look like in our experience as disciples? And my prayer for this message, which I hope will be very simple, in many ways the things I wish to say this morning are very obvious from the text, I hope it will stimulate us uh, to aspire to and to really achieve, uh, through God's help, a closer walk with Christ uh, than we have ever yet known, that we would experience communion with God, communion with the Lord Jesus in deeper and richer and fuller ways by virtue of us considering this passage together this morning. So I have two basic headings, two basic questions I want to ask of the passage. The first is this, how do we understand the image of the vine and the branches? How do we understand the image, the metaphor of the vine and the branches? What's being communicated by this image? And then secondly, what are some lessons we can learn from this image? So how do we understand, first of all, the image of the vine and the branches? The first thing to say is this. I just try to say this a couple times a year when I have opportunity, okay? You do recognize 
uh, that the Bible is a piece of literature, that it comes to us in the form of various genres, uh, various literary genres, various genres of human communication. The Bible is, of course, a divine and human document. It's divine in the sense that it is the breathed out Word of God, inspired by God. It is His revelation. Uh, But God has not given us the Scriptures in an angelic tongue or something like that. He's given us the Scriptures in, in actually quite ordinary forms of human communication. And that human communication is given to us in various genres. So in the Bible, you have uh, poetry, you have narrative, you have prophecy, you have apocalyptic literature, you have theological treatise. And uh, one such genre is very common in human communication, and that is metaphor. Uh, we have a metaphor in John 15. And I I mention this to say um, there are certain rules of interpretation that accompany that form of communication that we call metaphor. Uh, Simply put, metaphors only go as far as they go. Okay, so every single detail in a metaphor is not meant to hold significance. We're not to read worlds into uh, obscure things in metaphors. It really is the very obvious things that are to be uh, uh, made manifest by virtue of the metaphor. And I say this because there are a couple of places in this passage where, where people have, have maybe tried to read too much into the metaphor and gone into some error. I'm thinking particularly of verse 2, where Jesus says, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Now, this has led some to speculate or to ask, does this mean that someone can be united to Jesus? I mean, it says the branch is in me, and, and yet can be taken off from the vine and thrown away? And uh, could we actually be separated from Christ once having been united to Him, once having been attached to Him? Can we be separated from Him and thrown out? Well, that's not the idea at all, and that would be to read inappropriate things into this metaphor. The very transparent and obvious point Jesus is saying is that there is no such thing as a disciple that doesn't bear fruit. And in the world of the metaphor, it works best that that be a branch on the tree that is dead and that is taken away. There's such a thing as false professors, and I think that's manifestly uh, Jesus' point. And obviously, we know in other places in the Gospel of John uh, that Jesus taught that all those who are in Christ and have been uh, saved by Christ's grace are eternally secure. The Lord Jesus makes this plain in His statement in John 6, 37, all that the Father gives to me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will never cast out. So so, so don't conclude by reading this passage, and verse 2 in particular, that having come to Christ and having been united to Christ, well, you better keep up your good works or something or you'll be taken away. That's not the idea at all. Remember, we're we're reading a metaphor, an an image here that Jesus is using to communicate certain truths to us. So we have this metaphor before us. What's being communicated by the metaphor? Well, there's four basic parts to the image that's used here. Uh, There's the vine there's the vine dresser, there's the branches, and there's the fruit. I get paid to do this, by the way, to come up with these very obvious observations. Uh, the vine, the vine dresser, the branches, and the fruit. It's manifest in the text, right? What are those four particular parts? What's being conveyed through those parts? You have the vine, first of all. The vine is, of course, Christ Himself. Jesus says that plainly. This is the last of the seven I am statements in John's gospel. He says, I am the true vine. The vine in this passage is the Lord Jesus. And I I think the use of the vine imagery by Jesus is not random. Of course, that's obvious. Nothing Jesus says is ever random. But but what I mean by that is to say Jesus was not talking to His disciples in in so casual a way, and He just thought, well, now now what what image will I use to get this point across? Let's just go with a vine. 
There are some scholars who speculate that maybe by this point in the upper room discourse, they're, they're walking along uh, the road uh, in Jerusalem and they saw a vine or something like that and Jesus used that as an image. I, I don't think that's what's going on here. But the main point I want to make is this. I think Jesus is doing something very specific in his use of a vine as the image here. He says, I am the true vine. Now, if you were to look up every usage of the word vine in the Old Testament, you would realize very quickly that that image of a vine is often used to describe the nation of Israel. God's old covenant people are often referred to as the the vine that God planted. So in a number of texts in the Old Testament, I'll just read one of them to you where the, the, the vine imagery to describe Israel is very prominent. In Psalm 80, verses 7 and 8, we read, Restore us, O God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. And then later on in the psalm, verse 14, Turn again, O God of hosts. Look down from heaven and see. Have regard for this vine, the stock that your right hand planted. The psalmist is referring to God's people, Israel, uh, under the old covenant, the means through which, the people through which God would bring redemption and would accomplish his redemptive purposes. Israel was said to be God's vine in a unique way. But now Jesus, speaking to a room full of Jewish men, with all that he's already said about himself as the Messiah to come, the longed-for, expected one, he says to them, I am the true vine. The true vine. There's a replacement motif taking place here. Jesus, in some sense, replaces Israel. The locus of God's redemptive plan will not now be in the nation of Israel, but will be in Christ Himself, the one who was promised through the nation of Israel. Now the true vine is here, and God's redemptive plans will be accomplished through this true vine the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if you didn't appreciate that when we first read the text, that there's this replacement motif taking place here and all these Old Testament references to the vine referring to Israel, that's okay. Uh, Had you read the commentaries uh, this week, you would have seen that as well. But I bring it up for two reasons. Number one, because I think it's there. I think this is why Jesus puts that, that qualifier there. I am the true vine. You've heard of the Lord using a vine in the past. He has worked in that vine, Israel, but I am the true vine. The second reason I bring it up is because it holds a very important point for us. God is not going to accomplish His redemptive plans through an ethnic people group. God will bring about redemption and salvation through His Son, the Lord Jesus. He is the true vine, which means whether or not you are accepted in God's sight depends not on where you stand in relation to the Jewish people, but where you stand in relation to Jesus Christ the vine. And so for us, the question is never, of what nation are you a part? Uh, Or of what family do you belong? Where is your church membership? Or who is your pastor or your spouse or your Sunday school teacher? The question is never, what books have you read or what degrees have you achieved? The question is always, are you united to Christ, the true vine, the only vine, The appointed means through which God is bringing redemption. Jesus has already said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. You cannot get to God through stringent adherence to Old Testament customs. I am the way to the Father. And he says here, I am the true vine. 
The question is always, are you united to the Lord Jesus? And I ask it of you now. Uh, We have visitors here. We have children here. We have professing believers here. Have you been united to Christ? All that will matter on the last day is where you stand in relation to God's own Son. Have you been united to the true vine, to the one in whom all God's redemptive plans and purposes are accomplished? Have you been united to Jesus Christ? That is a question of the greatest urgency, the greatest importance, and it really is the difference between life and death on the last day, and an eternity in paradise forever, or in hell apart from the Lord Jesus. Are you attached to the Son? Are you attached to the vine? Have you been attached to Christ? So the vine is Christ. He is the true vine, the only vine. Secondly, we have the vine dresser. The vine dresser, very plainly told to us, is the Father. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. The Son is the vine. The Father is the vine dresser. The vine dresser, we don't use that language often in our day. Think of a gardener one who tends to the plant, tends to the flower, tends to the vine. The vine dresser is the one who tends to the vine. He's responsible for pruning and cultivating the branches on the vine and stripping away the dead wood and making sure it doesn't disease the vine or the tree. And I think we're meant to see here in the world of the metaphor uh, something of the unity between the Father and the Son, uh, the communion that takes place between the Father and the Son. It really is a beautiful picture when you view it that way. The Father as the vine dresser, He loves the vine. He cherishes the vine. And He wants the vine to have many branches that bear good fruit. And the vine brings pleasure to the vine dresser. He loves to see that vine with many branches shooting off of it and bearing fruit to the glory of the Father. Well, similarly, the Father delights in the Son and wants people to follow His Son and to bear fruit through their connection to Him. That verse I mentioned a moment ago in John 6.37 refers to souls being given from the Father to the Son, and the Son saving them. Those who come to Him, He will save them. The Father loves to see branches growing off the vine through their attachment to the vine and bearing much fruit. And the Son, for His part, delights to bring glory and pleasure to the Father by giving life to these branches, these disciples that in turn bear much fruit. If you look at it that way, it's really quite astounding, isn't it? We become uh, involved in a very significant way in the pleasure and the delight and communion that exists between the Father and the Son. You see that? Isn't that a glorious thing? Uh, The Father uh, uh, has given the vine, and His delight is for that vine to be fruitful and bearing many branches, and those branches bearing fruit. And, And God we read the vine dresser in verse 8 receives much glory. And this, my Father, is glorified that you bear much fruit. So God loves to see His Son, now going outside the world of the metaphor, saving men and women and, 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 and being a Savior for them, forgiving them of their sins and cleansing them and making them fruitful. That gives glory to the Father, and He is determined to accomplish His glory through Christ's relationship with His disciples. So we have the vine and the vine dresser. Christ is the vine, the Father is the vine dresser. Then you have the branches. You have two types of branches. Uh, Branches that are dead and branches that are alive. Very clearly, uh, we see that dead branches bring no pleasure to the vine dresser. Uh, They have no true root in the vine. Uh, They are only good to be burned. Uh, Similarly, 
professing disciples, professing disciples, who feign an attachment to Jesus, but do not bear any fruit, that is, they do not show any sign of a vital connection to Him, are not united to Christ, they are not Jesus' disciples. They are false professors, which leads us to this principle. Fruit-bearing, fruit-bearing is a test of true discipleship. Fruit-bearing in the life of the professing Christian is a test of true discipleship. Verse 8 says this, by this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. It does not say you become a disciple by fruit-bearing. Never make that mistake. You are not made a disciple, made part of the tree by bearing fruit detached from the vine. No, but you, you prove to be a disciple by the fruit that is born. And if you don't bear any fruit, you're only fooling yourself. You're not fooling God. God is an experienced vine dresser. He knows what fruit looks like. You're not fooling Him. And all those who do not bear fruit, the text reads, will be taken away and will be burned But now to the branches that bear fruit, and the Lord Jesus' instructions are primarily for them. These disciples there now that Judas is gone are those who are attached to the vine and do bear fruit. They are understood to be vitally connected to the vine, and they bear fruit, and this brings pleasure to the vine dresser. These are true disciples that are truly united to Christ, truly bear fruit to the glory of God the Father, and Jesus' directions are chiefly for them, which we'll look at in a few minutes. And then you have this fourth piece. So the vine, the vine dress of the branches, then you have the fruit. Fruit's a good thing in this passage, plainly. We know fruit is a good thing. Well, what is the fruit? I don't think we need to complicate this. I think fruit is any good thing that brings pleasure from the believer to the Lord Jesus. We don't need to complicate it. I think it's legitimate to look at the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5, 22 and 23, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, Peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That's fruit that's born in the life of the true disciple, truly attached, united to Christ. That is well-pleasing to the Lord and brings glory to the Father. The fruit can include all the positive good works that Christ calls His people to. In essence, though, the the fruit is this. It's, It's godliness. It's holiness. It's piety. It's a certain quality of life that's born out in the believer and characteristics that weren't there before that begin to emerge, and it's bright, and it's beautiful, and it's glorifying to God. The fruit is not platform, influence, numbers, or something like that. I I say that only because I've heard the text applied in that way. Well, a Christian who's fruitful to God will lead tons of people to Christ. A Christian who's fruitful, according to these passages, uh, will be in a, a really, really big church or something like that. That's not the idea at all. The fruit in this passage is a certain uh, character and quality of life that's brought about uh, through union with Christ. And it looks like godliness of character and piety in life and the beauty of holiness in the life of the believer. But I I will argue next week uh, that the greatest expression of fruitfulness in the life of the believer, I do think there are fruits that shine more brightly taste the sweetest. The sweetest fruit in the life of the believer in the conduct of the upper room is love. 
It's love that Christians have for one another. Verse 12 says this, this is my commandment. You legitimately say, this is one of the brightest fruits, that you love one another as I have loved you. It's amazing how much this command is repeated in John 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17. Again and again, Jesus returns to this, this proof of discipleship, this sweet-tasting fruit in the life of the believer, uh, this, this sine qua non of Christian discipleship that we are to love one another as Christian people. So now putting it all together, what do we have in this image when taken as a whole? Now, the image communicates to us the believer's union with Christ and what that union produces in the life of the believer to the glory of God the Father. That, that's what the image is teaching us. Now consider with me, secondly, uh, the second heading, the second question we want to ask this morning of these verses. What lessons can we learn from the image of the vine and the branches? What lessons can we learn from the image of the vine and the branches? And I have five of them. Number one, the fundamental self-identity of a Christian is one of union with Christ. The fundamental self-identity of a Christian is one of union with Christ. Children, if I asked you, uh, what is a branch? How would you describe a branch? How would you define a branch? What would you say? Well, you might say, well, a branch is uh, this thing that comes off of a tree, and uh, it's like an offshoot of the tree, and it gets all its life and its nutrients from the tree itself. That's what a branch is. Well, similarly, what is a Christian? A Christian is one who is fundamentally united to Jesus Christ, one connected and attached to Him, drawing all of one's life and support and vitality from Him. Now, if you've never quite appreciated this, this can be quite paradigm shifting. There's a way in which we can talk about Christianity and our Christian lives and our relationship to the Lord that's not really accurate and faithful to Scripture. So, 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 the picture in the Bible, it's not pie-in-the-sky religion. It's not getting fire insurance or something like that, the way some preachers talk. It's not like I go to Jesus and I get the blessing and the things and I go on my merry way. It's not the idea at all. The gospel is that you get Christ and everything in Him. All the blessings I have as a Christian, I have by virtue of my union with Christ. So we said this earlier in the Gospel of John, I think John 6 in particular, Jesus is not handing out eternal life tickets. He's saying, come to me, the bread of life, and taste, and you will have eternal life. I had a seminary professor who suggested, you know, in the new heavens and the new earth, none of us will possess an inherent trait of immortality. I'm like, I thought we would live forever. His point was that we only have immortality and life unending in paradise forever by virtue of being attached to Christ. And as long as we're attached to Him, we can never die. Now, you could work on the mechanics of all that if, if that's exactly accurate, but there is something true there, uh, that every blessing we have, we have in connection to Jesus, and we don't get the blessings apart from connection to Jesus. Uh, this is what the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 1. Verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Him, by union with Him, 
with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. And what are those blessings? Paul goes on to talk about our adoption and our election and the forgiveness of sins and redemption by His blood and the sealing of the Spirit. We have those blessings by virtue of our vital connection to Jesus, by being united to Jesus. The fundamental self-identity, the way we're to conceive of ourselves, think of our identity is as one united to Christ. The branches are nothing apart from the vine. They're just dead wood without Him, but united to the vine. They are beautiful, fruit-bearing branches that live in vital union and communion with the vine and bring pleasure and glory to the vine dresser. Similarly, disciples who are united to Christ and bear the fruit that such union produces dwell in happy communion with Christ and bring glory and honor to God the Father. Now, this isn't just a happy thought. Like, God, I never thought of it that way. It says massive implications. In a generation, in a day and age that is obsessed with questions surrounding identity, how important is this? Christian, how are you to think about yourself? What is your identity? What makes you you? What gives you significance? It's where you stand in relation to Jesus. Your union with Christ is what defines you. It is your fundamental self-identity, which means my sense of worth, my sense of place is derived from my union with Christ. My dignity and my value and my worth are established through my connection to Jesus. This is what we mean in part when we say our identity is in Christ. I am who Christ says I am. I am who I am by virtue of my attachment to Him. Your identity, Christian, is not bound up in your sins. It's not bound up in what you've done or what's been done to you. Your identity is in Jesus. And whether or not you are the beneficiary of social privilege, whether or not you're a victim of some sort, whether or not you are loved and appreciated by others, whether or not you've achieved a great deal in your life, these are not the things that define you. What defines your identity, quorum Deo, before the face of God, what gives you worth is your connection to the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is not a small thing. All the other things about my life as a Christian become subordinate to this self-identity. The fact that I am a white middle-class man who graduated from Clemson and has a wife and two kids and an Italian heritage, that's a footnote on my identity. That's just mere commentary. Who am I? I'm one who has been united to the Lord Jesus Christ. As we said in the service, I belong body and soul to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Furthermore, my sense of the worth of my fellow Christians is derived from our shared union with Christ. So if if the fundamental identity of a Christian, self-identity of a Christian is that I'm united to the vine, I'm united to Christ, well, if I'm united to Christ and you're united to Christ, I love you. We're united to one another because we're both united to the vine and we together are seeking to bear fruit and the object of bearing fruit is to glorify God. And so I'm not just interested in the fruit on my little branch over here, I'm interested in the fruit on your branch because we're all seeking to live to the glory of God and bear fruit to His praise. We're connected to each other. We love each other. We're united to each other 
because our fundamental self-identity is those who have been united to Christ. And watch as you, as you dial down on that self-identity, watch the barriers just sort of fall between people. It just sort of simplifies everything. The Lord is the true vine. I'm united to Him. You're united to Him. We're united to one another. It's a glorious picture. It has tremendous implications for how we live in communion together. Our union with Christ additionally changes our perspective on our vocations. You are not just a husband or a wife. You're a husband or wife united to Christ. Now, what implications does that have for marriage? You're not just a son or a daughter. You're a son or daughter united to Christ. You're not just a businessman. You're a businessman united to Christ. You're not just a school teacher. You're a school teacher united to Christ. You see where I'm going with this? Understanding union with Christ as our core identity changes the way we understand everything else about ourselves. It influences all my callings and spheres of influence and vocations. I do these things, I assume these responsibilities as one attached, united to the Lord Jesus. Well, there's more that could be said. Obviously, our union with Christ in the New Testament is picked up as a uh, prod to fight against sin. Uh, Paul speaks in 1 Corinthians about how those who are attached to Christ cannot be attached to a harlot. Uh, my union with Christ changes my perspective on my sin. Many other things that could be listed, but we need to move on for the sake of time. Number two, number two, second lesson we can learn. First, the fundamental self-identity of a Christian is one of union with Christ. Number two, our union with Christ is a mutual union that involves our active participation. Our union with Christ is a mutual union, or we could call it a, a communion that involves our active participation. I'm looking now at verse 4. There we're told, Jesus says to his disciples, abide in me and I in you. That verb there in verse 4, abide, is an imperative verb. In other words, this doesn't happen by osmosis. You, disciples, you, Christians, abide in me. This is emphasizing our initiatives in the relationship. Now, don't get this wrong. Your union with Christ is established purely and totally and only by the grace of God. That's not in question here. But Jesus is now talking about communion with Christ and how we relate to Christ, and that involves our initiatives. And he says, you, disciple, you, Christian, abide in me. We're to engage actively in our ongoing abiding in Christ. It's to be dynamic. It's to be lived out. It's to be experimental. So what does it mean to abide in Jesus? What, what, what behaviors and, and habits and perspectives is that command? What does it involve? To abide in Jesus simply is to love Him, to be devoted to Him, to give attention to His Word and His commandments, to obey Him, to live in fellowship and communion with Him, to pray to Him, to talk to Him, to worship and adore Him. This is what it means to abide in Him, to devote ourselves entirely to Him, to know Him, to experience Him, to commune with Him. And this involves our whole-souled engagement. This is a dynamic relational thing, this communion with Christ. We're not meant to be passive. And this means we cultivate habits that nurture communion with Christ. It means we study His Word where He reveals Himself means we pray often, we talk to Him, 
It means we engage with other Christians who point us to Christ. We give ourselves entirely to following Jesus and living lives devoted to Him. This vision for abiding with Christ involves our engagement, our activity. It's a dynamic thing. And how is it that Jesus, for His part, nurtures communion with us? He says, abide in me and I in you. How does He nurture communion with us? Well, there's all sorts of ways that the Bible opens up. But in the context, there's one thing in particular that's emphasized. In verse 7, you abide in me and my words abide in you. Ask whatever you wish. It will be done for you. We abide in Christ. His words abide in us. And this isn't anything mystical or mysterious. It's not like Jesus comes and whispers words in your ear or something like that. Where are the words of Christ found? They're found in the Bible. Jesus, my words, my words which you have, my words which the Holy Spirit is going to take and to give to you, They must abide in you. You must have my words, and my words will nurture and stir and cultivate this communion between the believer and Christ. How does Christ, for his part, nurture communion with his people? It is through his word, which means you cannot expect, you cannot expect to become closer with Christ apart from his word. Your closeness with Christ will never go further than your knowledge and experience of his word found in Scripture. If you want to walk more closely with Christ, you need His words abiding in you. It was this vision for communion with Christ and disciples abiding in Christ and His Word abiding in us that inspired some sisters in our church in the crafting of women's ministry here at Emmanuel as they began to contemplate a Bible study for women and other things that the women's ministry might do. This was the idea that possessed their minds. The, the ministry is called abide. So it's the verb that's used. It's very common to use verbs for church names, ministry names. But they didn't want something like catalyzed or something like that. They wanted a good biblical word. And the word they settled on was this word, abide. Because these sisters understand self-consciously that what they're doing by gathering together and giving careful attention to God's word, to Christ's words, is cultivating and nurturing communion with Christ. We are seeking, as a church, the sisters are seeking to abide in Him, to have His words abiding in them. That's the picture here of engaging in communion with Christ. Third lesson we should learn from this passage. All our fruitfulness depends upon our union with Christ. All our fruitfulness depends upon union with Christ. Look at verse 4, if you would. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. The simple point is that we cannot bear fruit in ourselves. We can only bear fruit through our union with Christ, which means every good and positive virtue, every Christian act, all the fruit of the Spirit is not ultimately the product of my hard work. Now, it might involve hard work, but it's not the product of hard work. It's the product of the grace of God. It's the product of being connected in a vital way to the vine itself. And all my fruitfulness comes from that connection to the Lord Jesus Christ, which means 
If I, as a Christian, want to be more fruitful, who doesn't want that? I have to go to Christ. I have to know Him better. I have to walk with Him more closely. I have to experience Him in my life more deeply. It's not by accident that the most fruitful and godly Christians are those who know Jesus best and walk with Him most closely. You don't become fruitful in the Christian life by accident. You, you become fruitful in the Christian life by cultivating a very near walk with the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's no accident, no mistake, that the most fruitful people in the church, the most fruitful people in the Christian life, the most fruitful people throughout church history have been those who walk close to the Savior. Christian fruitfulness has nothing to do with innate talents and gifts. Christian fruitfulness is not the province of the exceptionally bright Christian fruitfulness is the product, the sure result of a near walk with Christ. And as such, it is available to all who wish to walk with the Lord Jesus. I don't know any Christian who doesn't want to be fruitful. You can be fruitful. This vision is for every true believer. You can be fruitful, but you can't fast track fruitfulness. You can't cut corners in root to fruitfulness. Now, fruitfulness is cultivated, much like a vine is cultivated or a garden is tended. It involves daily abiding in the vine, abiding in Christ. And as with branches on a vine, so it is with Christians. Growth will not be measured in moments and in days, but in months and in years. We have a number of gardeners in the church, and I've been able to be in some of your homes and see your gardens. And there is almost nothing more attractive to me than a beautiful garden. And my wife and I talk about wanting to be gardeners. And we aspire to be like you, those of you who are gardeners. But I'm struck by the same thing every time you take me to see your gardens. I think, I, I don't have the patience uh, for this. I'm not as patient as you are. Uh, we, uh, Mark Sanger gave me a raspberry bush to plant like a year and a half ago. It just started um, uh, having raspberries on it. That took way too long. <laughs> Takes patience, right? Similarly with Christian fruitfulness. You don't decide, I'm going to be fruitful, and tomorrow all of a sudden you're fruitful. Fruitfulness is cultivated. It involves day in, day out, going to Christ's words, week in, week out, being among God's people, sitting under the preaching of the word and worshiping with others. And you won't notice tremendous progress in 24 hours. This is really important. I think a lot of Christians get kind of stalled out in sanctification because they, they want to fast-track fruitfulness and they're frustrated by how long and how hard it is. But, but this is the design. Like, like it takes a while for, for plants to grow and fruit to be born. Uh, similarly, the fruit of godliness in the life of the Christian takes time and it has to be cultivated it requires investment, it requires prayer, it requires day by day going to God's Word. And you, you don't turn around and measure your growth in terms of hours and days. You measure it in months and years. I, I, I don't know about you, I don't look back a, a week ago and say, man, I'm so much godlier than I was a week ago. I'm so encouraged by my growth. But I can assure you, I look back five years ago, ten years ago, and I'm encouraged there's been fruit. Maybe the root of the thing is really there. Don't fast-track fruitfulness. 
Go to the vine day by day. Abide in him. And you'll see little by little fruit begin to blossom, fruit begin to grow in your life. Number four, we've seen our fundamental self-identity is is as one united with Christ. Number two, our union with Christ. It's a mutual union that involves our active participation. Number three, all our fruitfulness depends on our union with Christ. And number four, our union with Christ involves occasional pruning. Ouch. Did you miss that? Did we read over that too quickly? Our union with Christ involves occasional pruning. Verse 2, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Now, what is pruning? I mean, it's in the image. He goes out of his way to include this in the image. What, what is the sort of pruning Jesus has in mind here? This is how I understand the pruning. Pruning is the sometimes painful intervention of God in the life of the believer designed to eliminate sin and produce greater fruitfulness. Pruning is the sometimes painful intervention of God in the life of the believer designed to eradicate or eliminate sin and produce greater fruitfulness. God, as the vine dresser, prunes away those things that would hinder the growth of the branches and would otherwise disease the branches. His pruning is his sometimes painful intervention in our lives to remove sin, to remove idols, to remove distractions. And notice the pruning is purposeful. Every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Pruning is always purposeful. Christian, no pruning that God does in your life is purposeless. God is after your maximum fruitfulness. He is happy. He is delighted. He is glorified in that you bear much fruit. And as He sees obstacles to your fruit bearing, He he prunes the branches. If He takes something away from you, If he introduces a trial into your life, if he seems to delay in giving you the answer to your prayers, none of it is purposeless. Now, we could wish that God would produce fruitfulness in our lives by another means. We could wish that it wasn't so painful, pruning hurts. It involves cutting away before fruit can grow. But this is the way God, the Father, the vine dresser, chooses to work. If we're united to Jesus Christ, the way the Father often makes us most fruitful is by the way He cuts away from our lives everything that is extraneous to His central purpose to use us for His glory. To the amateur eye, the amateur eye, the person who doesn't understand vine dressing, gardening, it can appear wasteful, it can appear sore, it can even appear destructive. But to the seasoned vine dresser, the one who knows what he's doing, he's accomplishing his purposes. This is to maximize fruitfulness. And to the disciple who understands what the Heavenly Father is doing, he can see this is part of his work. This is part of what he does. Some of you will know the famous missionary of the 20th century, Amy Carmichael, who's Irish. She served in India for 55 years without a single furlough. 
never came back on home assignment. And she was acquainted with suffering to a great degree. Ian Murray has written a biography about Amy Carmichael. She writes these words about this very passage. What prodigal waste it appears to see scattered on the floor the bright green leaves and the bare stem bleeding in a hundred places from the sharp knife. But with a tried and trusted husbandman, kids, that's someone who tends a garden, with a tried and trusted husbandman, there is not a random stroke in it all. Nothing cut away which it would not have been a loss to keep and gain to lose. Isn't that a helpful picture? What it means to be united to Christ. It means the vine dresser will use the pruning knife, and it may be painful, it may be mysterious, and it may seem destructive. God's sometimes painful intervention in our lives may seem destructive, but He is a seasoned husbandman. He knows what He's doing. Christians, sometimes the knife will seem like it's getting too close. Does it really have to go that close? A barren womb, a cancer diagnosis, the lost loved one you've been praying for again and again, even losing a loved one who you have so depended upon, financial ruin. Doesn't it seem like the knife is getting too close? Your father, the trusted and true husbandman, knows what he's doing. And it's never purposeless. He is pruning you to maximize fruitfulness to the glory of the Father. Not an encouraging thought. Doesn't make it any less painful. But to recognize there's a purpose in it all. We may not know how God is working, but we know that He is working in ways that will sometimes seem mysterious to us. He is accomplishing His purposes in our lives. The fifth and final lesson and we are just about out of time. The object in all of this is the glory of God. The object in all of this is the glory of God. Our union with Christ, our fruit bearing, our communion with Him, all of this is to the glory of God. That's what verse 8 says, by this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit. There's so much I would like to say, but, but my time is gone. Let me just say this. Isn't that a wonderful motivation to be a fruit-bearing disciple. I, I don't want to overshoot the mark here, but I think we say God has chosen to attach His glory in some degree upon our bearing fruit as those attached to the Lord Jesus Christ. What a motivation. My little life, my petty little life, that seems so small and insignificant. But by virtue of being united to the vine, united to the Lord Jesus, I can bear fruit to the glory of God the Father? Listen, that's not the privilege of Christian superheroes. That's not the privilege of pastors and theologians. That's not the province of people who just have it all together. This is held out to every true disciple. And, and we should say, God being my helper, I'm going to bear fruit to the glory of God. My life is for His glory, and the vine dresser is pleased to cultivate my life in such a way that He actually experiences pleasure in His disciples, in His people. What a glorious prospect. 
It's our habit when we celebrate the Lord's Supper on the first Sunday of the month. We sing a song, we'll sing a song in a few moments, and then I come down. And normally we'll say a few words to draw our attention to what's going on in our celebration of communion. I want to do that now here from the platform. And then I'll just give instructions when it's time to observe together, partake. The picture in John 15 is one of a vine and branches. And it's about the union of the believer with Christ and how to nurture communion with Christ and with the Father as well. It's not the only time an image like this is used in the Bible. You might ask the question, how did these branches get attached to the vine? You weren't born on the vine. I wasn't born as one united to Christ. How did this happen? Well, I'm thinking of Romans 11. There in Romans 11, an olive tree is is the image. It's talking about Jews and Gentiles, and there's a lot that's complicated there. But this image is used of of the Gentiles, those who were far from Christ, being grafted in. You know what that that is? You kids, go home today and and search that online, what it means to to graft uh, in a branch. It's a hard thing to do. You have to be very experienced in order to do it. But it involves taking a branch that was foreign to the tree, wasn't part of the tree, and through a maneuver with a knife and twisting the, the, the stem of the tree to the branch itself, it actually becomes part of the vine or the tree. It becomes like a branch that's part of it, and it can draw nutrients and life, having been grafted onto the vine itself. Well, I say that to say we are attached to Christ by virtue of being grafted in. We weren't born on the vine. We've been united to Jesus. So I want to go from John 15 to Romans 11 and now to Ephesians 2. You were once without hope and without God in the world, but you who once were far off now have been brought near. How? By the blood of Christ. How did we get here? How did we get on this vine? How is it that we're united to the Lord Jesus? It's through His blood. We've been united to Christ through His broken body and through His shed blood. And now He invites us, as often as we eat or drink, to observe communion with Him. In the observance of this ordinance that the Lord Jesus has given to us, our hearts are meant to run out to Christ, to remember His death and all that it accomplished, and to thank Him that He has made us members of the new covenant and attached us to the vine by His blood. And then we're to to commune with Him, to worship Him, to thank Him, to cause our hearts to run out to Him, to enjoy His forgiveness and His grace and our experience of His love. And that's what we come to do in these moments as we celebrate the Lord's Supper together. Let's pray together. Our Father, none of us belongs here. None of us belongs in Your presence None of us belongs on the vine by virtue of what we've done. But we we do now belong and have a place and have an identity in Christ through what you have done through your Son, the Lord Jesus. Father, how we thank you for your initiatives, grafting us into the vine and giving us an actual living relationship and communion with our Savior, the Lord Jesus. That by His blood we have been saved and by His blood we are now given a place in relationship with Him. 
and with the Godhead. We pray, Father, now as we come in these moments to sing and to remember the death of our Savior and all that it accomplished for us, we pray, Father, that we would experience something of relationship with you, experience with you, and communion with our Savior in these moments. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.